Okay, guys, the, uh, the plan here will be to try to run through a series of Divrei Torah uh, for several purposes. One is if you just want to have some Divrei Torah for the Seder, that's great. Uh, two, and even more importantly, is maybe just a way of demonstrating that is with, uh, I think, relatively little effort, you can look through different types of Haggadahs and find uh, short ideas that I think can be inspiring for yourself and also hopefully for people at the Seder. And a lot of times they can be food for thought to be like a launch pad for other discussions that people can have uh, at the Seder. So I tried to, to put together a bunch of, uh, <clears throat> a bunch of different, different Torah from a variety of different Haggadahs. Uh, in our family, we try to buy like one or two new Haggadahs every year just to sort of like mix things up and uh, get a sense. Not that we're reading everyone cover, every, every Haggadah cover to cover, but it's a nice idea, I think, to find new Haggadahs and new insights is one of the nice things. I think there's a lot, there's a lot, thank God, a lot of the Torah written specifically on the Haggadahs. There's a lot of opportunity for different uh, types of Torah and things like that. Okay, we'll start like this. There's a, there's a Haggadah I got when I lived in Cleveland. There's a rabbi there named Rabbi Ephraim Nissenbaum. has this Haggadah called Narrative of Faith. And uh, it's a beautiful uh, Haggadah. So, he's, uh, so he writes uh, as follows. He says, the very beginning of, uh, which I go basically in the order of the Seder. So he says, why at the very beginning we do a strange thing where we go through the whole order of the Seder. Like we call it the Seder, which means order. And we go through it. We say, you know, Kadeh, Scarf, And we say it. Like it's so funny. Like we say, here's what we're going to do. Like I'll just say as a side point, there's a, there's a line that they use sometimes when it comes to like uh, public speaking. They say, uh, say what you're going to do. Do it. Say what you did. Yeah, so it's a nice way of they're speaking sometimes. Like you said, they don't always have to do it, but it's a nice idea. Sometimes you let people know this is what we're going to do, and you do it, and at the end you summarize. So, uh, but at least the beginning part. So, so the idea of say, say what we're going to do, we don't usually do that. Honestly, we don't usually do that. But in the seder, we do it. We say this is going to be the whole word of the seder. If you didn't know what the seder is, this was going to be all the all the different parts. So why don't we do that? Why don't we do the davka on uh, on Pesach? So he says that like this. So so he, he suggests like this. He says when people uh, are fleeing slavery. The impression would normally be that it would just be like, you know, like a jailbreak, right? Like the, the, the gates open up and you just like run, you know, like that would be like the normal impression of what escape from slavery would be like. But that's not at all the impression that we get from Chumash, but what happened with Israel. Everything was organized as a nation. We traveled. There's Ananeha Kavod leading us or a pillar of fire leaving us. But even the Yamsuf, they just went in. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a Midrash that says that um, each tribe had its own separate um, like path to go through Yamsuf, whether it's straight or the way Rav Dovda was talking about, like in a semicircle. Either way, there's discussions about that. Like, everything very organized. The Torah tells us, Lo yecharach kelev l'shono, that a, a dog didn't, no dog even barked. That's a strange detail. Why we need that detail about the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? So the, the, the idea of the dog is, when does the dog bark? Like in all the movies, when does a dog bark? When something's strange, there's a mysterious person at the door, someone comes into the yard, you know, something seems fishy, so the dog barks. The dog's very attuned to when things are like not, when things are out of the ordinary. When the Torah tells us, it's telling us everything seemed very, very calm, very normal, purposeful, right? And that's, uh, there was like a mission, right? The mission was to leave, to go get the Torah, no, pandem- no pandemonium, no sense of disorder. And that's in the Midbar also. If you think this continues beyond uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right? And, and Sefer about Midbar, you get the idea of how the, the camp is set up, very organized, the traveling, very organized, by Hebin So Aharon, this group was here, this group was you know, then. Everything's very, very regimented in a certain way. The people, you know, the idea is when people with purpose are organized, they're calm, right? The Mako too, right? Each Maka, you know, had an effect on the particular population that was meant to have 
an effect on the particular element of the population. We see this also like later on. We say when we read when you say that we read that through the Makot. So Rabbi Yudah, Hayano Tain Behem Simanim. He says Tetzach Adash Beachav. It's like whoa, very clever, very clever, Rabbi You figured it out. Like the Roshay Tevot. Why do that? Like, why are you giving them Roshay Tevot? So it's a clever way to remember the Makot. So if you remember the Tachadash Bachav, you can remember the Makot. But, but what's the, so he, the Rabbi Nisram says that same idea. It's the idea sense of order, of precision, organization, right? That's what we just try to emphasize this idea. Um, so we do at the very beginning of the Seder, is we're trying to show that the Jewish people are people with purpose. We weren't just jailbreaking out of Egypt to like just run and get our freedom, right? That's escaping from something else. We weren't just escaping. We were very in an organized way, in a very, a very um, uh, purposeful way. We were leaving Egypt, but for the purpose of moving forward towards something else, moving towards Harsinai, moving ultimately towards, towards Eretz Canaan. We have a goal in mind, and when you have that, everything is ordered. So at the very beginning of the city, we start off with the idea that, yes, we are going to talk about escaping slavery, but we're doing so in a very purposeful way. So that's, just, uh, that's the first idea from uh, Rabbi Nisman. Okay, number two. Uh, we go to Kadesh. So Rabbi Mursky, that, that? Was that was Rabbi Ephraim Nissenbaum from a, from a Haggadah called Narrative of Faith. Rabbi Nissenbaum is, uh, is involved in Kirov in Cleveland. Um, okay, so the, for Kadesh, there's a very beautiful Haggadah called the Hegione Halacha Haggadah by Rabbi Mursky, that's all. So that, uh, it's a wonderful, the, the Hegione Halacha is a really nice safer in general, but he also has a Haggadah. So, what's that? Rabbi Mursky. Rabbi Mursky used to be the Rashiv in BMT. You know, the old yeshiva, which isn't around anymore, but, uh, okay. So he says like this, there's an interesting uh, uh, distinction that the Torah calls the, uh, the holiday et chag That's why in the, in the Kiddush, that's why it's back for Kaddish, in Kiddush we say et yom, hash, yom chag hamatzot hazeh. So what's, uh, that's the name of the Torah. But we, in the Chazal, call it Pesach, right? Mizach HaPesachim, right? No, even though Pesachim technically is talking about the, uh, the Korban Pesach too, but okay, but we also call, we call the holiday Pesach. So why do we have this distinction? So he quotes Rav Levi Mibirdichev. Okay, he says as follows, one of my, actually one of my, he quotes one of my favorite Gemaras in Shas. So the Gemara in Baruchot, you guys probably remember, says that just like B'nai Yisrael wears tefillin, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wears tefillin. So I, I always thought it's like a very beautiful uh, image. It's, I mean, it's not literal, but it's a beautiful image. So, so the our tefillin, uh, our tefillin, uh, reflect our love for Kadesh Baruch Hu. That our tefillin have the part, you know, in the part of Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkei Hashem Echad shows our dedication to Kadesh Baruch Hu. So when the Gemara asks, what does Hashem's tefillin have? So what does Hashem's tefillin have? So if you remember, so it says, Mi ka'amcha Yisrael goyachad ba'aretz. Who is like your nation, Israel, a singular nation in the land. I found it, it's a, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful image. So showing that sort of the, the, the the, you know, the relation, the back and forth, and how we, we each appreciate each other, right? Like we show appreciation for God, and Hashem Kibiachal shows his appreciation for the Jewish people. So we do that also when it comes to the Chag, we will call the holiday Chag HaPesach, because Chag HaPesach reminds us of Pasach. Hashem you know, passed over or hovered over our homes, protected us in Mitzrayim. Right? So we want to remember the Chesed that Hashem did. That's what we're thinking about. So we call the holiday, holiday Chag HaPesach. But Hashkadosh Baruch when he writes in the Torah, right? What's, what's the holiday? What's the name of the holiday he wants? Chakamatzot. Why? Because he gave his commandments about baking matzah, not uh, rushing. You know, oh, actually, no, no, sorry, dafka like rushing or you know, preparing for the holiday that way. So the idea is again that Hashem calls a Chakamatzot because that represents our dedication to His uh, mitzvot. 
It's like the Pasuk in, uh, in Yirmiyahu, Zacharti la chesed nu'urayich. Hashem said, I remember like the chesed you did in your younger years, right? Like earlier, earlier days. So that's what reflects the same idea. And that's an insight we find in the, even, even just the terminology of the, uh, of the, of the Kiddush. Okay, Yofi. Um, okay, next, <coughs> one of the halachot about Kiddush is Haseba, that we have to lean uh, to our side, we lean to our left side while we drink the, uh, the wine of Kiddush. It's also true for matzah as well. So why do we do this? Why do we, why do we have this? Rav Soloveitchik teaches there's a, there's a Haggadah that came out called Exalted Evening. I think there's several Haggadahs actually that now have the Torah of Rav Soloveitchik. Just a quick side point. It's interesting. Rav Soloveitchik you know, wrote several articles but didn't really publish that much in his lifetime. Uh, ironically, since his passing in 1993, uh, more Svarim have come out, like a zillion Svarim come out of the Rav's writings. Some of it is just collation of other things that he wrote and said. And some of it is used for manuscripts that he had left behind. But it's a lot there's been like there was an explosion of his writing after he uh, passed away. So it's very nice. It's a lot of good Torah from the Rub. So he the Rub explained as follows, and this is really a theme that the Rub writes about a lot in the context of uh, Pesach. He says, Haseba is as follows. What's what's uh, what's about leaning? He says, A slave lives a life in fear, both for his physical safety. But even just uh, the idea of like contradic- contradicting or disagreeing with the master, he can never he can never relax. The slave like is always on edge, you know, because the, the master can always ask him to do something, demand you do something. If you make a wrong step, a wrong move, you know, the master make it upset with you. You really don't. You're very very tense all the time, and that's represented by uh, an erect posture, right? Stiffness, right? A soldier stands straight, right? The soldier doesn't relax until the until the officer says at ease. You can like relax a little bit, but you know. But at attention, you know, the soldier is is, is uh, it cannot relax. In contrast, a free man, right? One of the definitions of a free person is you can relax, and relax means you know psychologically relax, but also physically. You can physically like you know relax your body, and that's represented by haseba. Haseba is this ability to just sort of chill, lean, you know, and uh, and be relaxed. So that represents this idea of being a free person. Furthermore, he says that the posture of leaning represents, in a certain sense, disobedience, right? Like an unwillingness to be subservient to man's authority, right? If you're sitting, you know, if you're sitting, if you have an interview, let's say, so they probably, you know, if you, if you go to like, uh, and when you're in college, they'll give you like, you know, they'll have like, uh, you know, uh, meetings they'll have with you, like about preparing you for interviews. So one of the things they'll tell you is, you should sit straight, you know, don't cross your legs and lean back. Maybe you want to lean forward slightly, make eye contact, right? But like, you're going to hold your body in a particular way because you want to make an impression on the person who sort of controls your fate to some extent, right? The boss is able to lean back and relax, you know, things like that, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a much more relaxed pose. And what we try to do a lot of times at the Seder is we try to do something physically that represents how we are supposed to be feeling psychologically or emotionally. And I would say it has two elements to that, right? One is, and again, I'll interrupt said exactly in this detail, but I'll, I'll add to it. I think it's on the one hand, it's sort of reflective of what we're trying to feel. And the second thing I would say is we're trying to make ourselves feel that way sometimes, right? So sometimes the way, the way you make yourself relax is to physically allow your body to relax, right? Like you can shake it out, you know, things like that. They have this study and then they say that people who um, physically smile, right, feel better. So they tell you like sometimes if you're like nervous about something, stick a pen in your mouth, right? You ever hear this thing? Stick a pen in your mouth? And then you, you just make this, the, the, it looks like you're smiling. Are you talking about that? 
Yeah, so it's a great study, it's a great idea, right? So that, that's true, right? When you physically allow yourself to relax, you feel better. So that's the idea. So that's essentially Rav Soloveitchik's idea. But Haseba, why dafka we do that when we're, when we're drinking, uh, drinking the wine? And also when we're eating matzah. I'll just throw in a, a side point here I wasn't going to say, but, but matzah, I was saying, also has this uh, dual nature, right? Matzah represents slavery on one hand, right? It's like lesham um, oni, but it's also lesham of freedom. Because it's what we're supposed to eat as we leave Mitzrayim. So the, certainly the idea of Haseba certainly uh, leans more in the direction, you know what I mean? Uh, leans more in the direction of the, uh, of the, uh, the element that is a freedom. Okay. okay, moving along, moving along. Urachatz. Okay, there's a great Haggadah, a classic Haggadah, at least from my, my day, when the art friend of art scroll called the Haggadah of the Russia Yeshiva. There's more than one volume in this. The Haggadah of the Russia Yeshiva. They were like these great Russia Yeshiva in America uh, and in Israel, which is, you know, in, the, in the 20th century. And so they had this Haggadah where they like collated a bunch of uh, different Torah from various Russia Yeshiva in the, in the Torah world. So there's a, it's a really nice Haggadah. So they have the, so in Urachatz, they have the following insight. It says like this you know, the issue of Urachatz is strange. We're going to wash our hands. Hands, when we wash our hands without the bracha, and it's because we're going to eat the carbos, which we dip into the salt water. So what's going on? So it says the idea of washing your hands in that context has halachic basis. Because the truth is, the halacha technically is, if you're going to eat foods that are dipped in liquid, because those foods are now susceptible to tuma. Okay, when they come into contact with uh, certain liquids, like the food is susceptible to tumma. So then you don't want to make me uh, metame the food, or so you want to uh, wash your hands. And that was a, that was a takana in order to deal with uh, because of the issues of truma. You don't know you can't make truma tame in regular food. We don't have an issue with tumma, but for truma you do. Similar to why we wash for bread, right? Because uh, it's a similar issue, right? Because there was uh, truma bread, so you know, everyone wash their hands. Uh, now, so anyway, the point is that nowadays. Um, we certainly don't make a bracha if you practice this nowadays. You don't make the bracha. It's a suffix whether we're supposed to do the bracha. And the truth is that there's many people, most of us probably, don't wash our hands before we eat, you know, uh, uh, anything dipped in something else. Some people are mocked, like, you know, they'll have, like, wash an apple. They'll make sure they dry the apple so they don't eat an actual wet apple or something like that. But there's people who do both things. The people who do it, the people who don't do it. But the question is, okay, so let's say we're in the group of people who don't normally wash our hands. So what are we doing a Saturday night for? Like, it's a very strange thing. So one answer might be that uh, the children will ask. That's like the answer to everything, right? It's a good answer. But it's a, so we'll do weird things, right? So okay, we just weird practice. That, that, you know, and, again, and it's not coming from nowhere, but we do things to children will ask. But, uh, but they hear it. They'll get a verse yeshiva. They try to explain as follows. So two answers from Rishol B'Zaman Orvach. Rishol B'Zaman Orvach says like this. Number one is, there's different minhagim how to do what orchats. One minhag is that only the leader of the seder uh, washes his hands. So they bring like a pitcher of water to the head of the table, right, with a basin, and, that, and, the, and he washes his hands that way. And if that's the way you're doing it, so that's a demonstration of affluence, of like uh, being like a king, like a free person. So that's a theme certainly we just mentioned, right? That's a theme certainly we have in the Seder. So maybe that's why we're doing this strange action, because it's another opportunity to demonstrate that element. A second possibility is, Thinking about, also Rosh Hashanah suggests that thinking about what's the goal of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right? A lot of what we're doing, right? We think about this during Dayan and we talk about this, right? Like uh, each step where we're going, but ultimately where do we go? We end up in the Beit HaMikdash, right? So if you think about where we leave, we leave Egypt so that we can go to Har Sinai and then start living a life of Torah and Mitzvot, etc., etc. So if that's the goal, so it makes sense that our focus is, we have this purpose, Yitzhak Mitzrayim for the purpose of Avodat Hashem, so then we should take opportunities during the evening to really 
uh, focus on, you know, show our commitment to Avodat Hashem and even maybe do things that we don't normally do. But this night we'll do a little extra, a little extra um, to show how, you know, how much we're embracing this opportunity. Okay, that's the idea. Yof. Let's move on to Karpas itself. Okay, this is a really nice inside thing from Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, you know, the, you know, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, that's all. So, uh, so he has this really nice insight I, I find to be really meaningful. He says like this, there's actually two dippings that we do during the Seder, right? Uh, can we say that during the right? Yeah, so what are the two dippings? So one's the Karpas in the salt water, and the second is... The Mara, the Mara and the Charos, okay? So what's going on here? So he says like this, it's parallel. Those two dippings are parallel to two dippings we have that are, uh, surround the, uh, the Pesach story. The first is the very beginning of the, of the Egypt story is with Yosef and his brothers, right? Yosef goes out to be trying, so they dip the coat. I see you got it, right? They dip the coat in the blood, of the, of the goat blood, right? So that's point number one. That was the first dipping. The second one is we dip the, the Ezov, the Hyssop, in the blood of the Korban Pesach to put on the doorpost and be trying so that Hashem will be uh, Poseach. So what's going on here? So he says, so he says, those are the parallel ideas that we're sort of reflecting, um, the beginning and the end of the, uh, of the, of the story of the Geula. Great. So what's going on here? So what happens in the end is like this. Karpas is a sweet vegetable. He calls it like a sweet vegetable, I guess. It's not, it's not maro. And it's dipped in salt water, which is salty. So it's not so good. Yeah. I mean, it's an, you know, maybe like the contrast is nice, but like it's, a, it's, a con, it's a, there's contrast there. Yeah, there's contrast. And we have the same thing in the opposite with maro. We dip in charosa. The maro is bitter. You dip in charosa, which is sweet. So you have a sweet into the salty and then a... And a and then, a salt, and then a bitter into the sweets. So what's going on there? So he said, Rabbi Sachs suggests like this. What it's trying to show us is a, a, a duality for each of these things. On the one hand, freedom, which is sweet, let's say. Freedom is wonderful, but we dip, let's say, uh, the, the karpas in the salt water to remind ourselves that even something sweet can become bitter if you don't use the, if you use the freedom to oppress other people. So now your freedom has been tainted. Okay, so you have to be very careful. The gift of freedom is wonderful, but you have to use it properly. If you don't use it properly, it's terrible. On the other hand, the opposite is also true. Slavery, which is such a terrible thing, a terrible existence, right? The maror, we dip the maror in charoset. Why? Because even slavery can be sweet to some extent. If, he says, if we use the, the, the experience of slavery to unite for a common cause, which leads ultimately to freedom, and maybe we'll add in, also leads to greater sensitivity to other people, as we always recall the fact that we were Gerim and Eretz Mitzrayim to make sure we have proper compassion for people who also are maybe on the, on the edges of our society. So if you take this, this bitter thing of slavery, but ultimately that bitter thing can become sweet as well because we're using it to, uh, for the proper purposes. So that's Rabbi Sachs. So they have Karpas, which again, parallels the, 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 the Mara, they're having these uh, the differences. Uh, the carpus and the no. oh Yosef uh, Yosef's coat in the in the blood the the is the Ezov, the hyssop branch that we dip in the blood of the korban pesach to put on the walls to paint the to paint the doorpost okay tov okay great awesome uh, okay let's move on oh here we go yachatz okay yachatz what do we do with yachatz? Yachatz, we are breaking the matzah. Okay, just a quick halacha point, right? We break the matzah in half, and the larger half gets put aside for the uh, apikom. Okay. 
what's going on there. So breaking the matzah represents lesham only. This is also from the Rabbi Nisimbem, the narratives of faith, narrative of faith uh, uh, Haggadah. So he says breaking the matzah represents lesham only. Right, the the aspect of matzah we mentioned, right, which is as the poor man's bread, because a poor man, right, has to always uh, hold on to some food for later. So you break the matzah in two, I have a little bit now, and save a little bit for later. The poor man never knows where the next meal is going to come from. So if you have an opportunity to eat now, you don't stuff yourself. That's irresponsible. Save a little. You got to save some for later. Okay. So uh, so this Fasemus writes that that also represents the stages of our geula of our redemption. It says Yitziat Mitzrayim was the first stage. True, Yitziat Mitzrayim is great. It's great and a wonderful thing. But our understanding was Yitziat Mitzrayim was only the first stage. But there's an understanding there's more to come later on. Meaning there's still there's still Harsinai. There's still going to be entering Eretz Yisrael or Eretz Canaan at the time. Yeah. So the idea is that if we're doing the Yachas, the Yachas represents yeah, poor man's bread. Yes, put it somewhere, put it somewhere for later. There's a deeper idea that the whole idea of Yitziat Mitzrayim is right, that, that idea. Yes, it's something we're celebrating now, but there's more to come later. That's sort of the idea, yeah? Um, so, uh, so I think that's what they did. Furthermore, he says, when we start to speak about slavery, that's what Yachaz ultimately is. The beginning, the beginning is in Matzfil Bignut, where we start to talk about slavery. So we show that we understand that even though we're in Galut, we anticipate a future Redemption. There's something, you know, there's something that's happening now, but there's always something up ahead in the future. So it's a very positive spin, right? If you think like the Lacham Oni is like a negative spin, right? Put some away for later because you never know when you're going to get more food. But that, but that same idea is also very positive, meaning we can anticipate there's going to be something good later on. And that's really from the, a lot of the messaging of the Nadav Yisiyat Mitzrayim is about that idea of anticipating something in the future. When we're in Galut, anticipating something better, right? We say at the end of the Seder, Lashana Habavi Rishalayim, right? Sometimes we're a little bit spoiled nowadays because, like, our experience of Galut isn't always so bitter. And some of us are privileged to be in Eretz Israel on the night of Pesach. It's a little ironic. Lashana Habavi Rishalayim. It feels like, hmm, it's so funny that we sing it. But okay, we still do. But certainly, if you think, like, you know, traditional, like, you know, after 2,000 years, the Jewish people experiencing. You know, uh, say there, while you're sitting on Galut, you're celebrating freedom when you're in Galut, right, in terrible situations. So that gives a sense of hope as well. That there's going to be another time later, where, you know, over the horizon that will be uh, more positive. Yofi, okay. Okay. Um, let's say like this. Okay, let's go into the Magid section. Okay. Um, there's a nice Haggadah of the teachings of Nechama Leibovitz. So she teaches oftentimes a little bit more like technical things, and hopefully there's um, some nice messages there. So she says like this: We have the four uh, the four questions. The Arba, we call them the Arba Kushiyot. So she says, why do they call Kushiyot as opposed to She'ilot? So if you pay, you know, if you and then Gemara sometimes we make that distinction, right? Like there's a She'ila, She'ila Biro versus a Kushia. So what's the difference? So She'ila means a question. I want information. Why do we do this? Yeah, but Kushia is challenging more. Right? There's a contradiction, something's out of place, something's out of the ordinary, so it needs a more specific answer. So she says here that that's what we're saying. The, the night of, uh, of Pesach, the night of the Seder, we're asked, the child's asking for kushiyot. Why? Because this is not just simple like information gathering, this is actually a night of sophisticated learning, not just asking childish questions. It's true, we have the child to ask the questions. But it's really trying to have a sophisticated uh, discussion. Now you see, that, by the way, this is a theme you see sometimes in different uh, Haggadahs and different discussions, is this idea, the Rav Salavetsuk talked about this in terms of like Limud Torah as being an essential part of the discussion of Sipa, the, 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 uh, the mitzvah of Sipur Yetziat Mitzrayim. Um, I think when he contrasted that to the, to the mitzvah, the daily mitzvah of Zechirat Yetziat Mitzrayim, I think Rav Chaim used to point out these distinctions. So, uh, 
So Rav said that uh, you have to have Talmud Torah in particular. That's an element of our conversation. So the Chavim Levitz, I think, is expressing a similar idea. These are, these are sophisticated questions. Okay. Um, <coughs> furthermore, there's a Pasuk we quote. It says, uh, So that you will t- tell the story in the ears of your children. Basically, what I, you know, what I poured out to Mitzrayim and, and, the, and the signs I uh, placed there, you'll know that I'm God. So there's two verbs here for the person. You will tell. And that's a singular verb. But at the end of the Pasuk, it says, and you will know, you plural will know. So she asked two questions. Number one, why is it tisaper and... Uh, then tavitatem, and also in the Haggadah in Avadim Hayinu we say everyone's required lesaper biyitziat mitzrayim. That's another question she asked. Why do you do lesaper biyitziat? You should say lesaper et yitziat mitzrayim. You should tell the story like of yitziat mitzrayim. Why is it lesaper bi? Which is like in yitziat mitzrayim. So she says like this: the change in the number indicates something about education. She says like this: that starts with one person. There's one person, person with the knowledge. And they tell the stories. That person is misaper. That person reads one person. But because that person teaches more people, so it changes from an individual endeavor to an endeavor that has to do with many, many people. So it's tisaper to start. But ultimately, ultimately, vidatem. You, and you'll know. Meaning you plural will know. Meaning, right, there's many people will will learn. And that's one of the things we try to do with the Seder also, right? There's, each person can maybe share some information, share, share a nice insight. But the idea is that everyone should gain from the uh, the sharing from the teaching. Another idea there also is that when a person uh, teaches to somebody else, so right, as the Gemara tells us, right, me tell me you tell me kulam, right, you learn more from your students than anybody else. So when you have the opportunity to teach, not only is the person who learns from you gaining, but the person who's teaching also gains, right? And so there's a bidatem, yes, the, the individual person now knows, but you also know more than you knew before because they ask you questions, they challenge you, even just having to think about how to formulate what you want to say sharpens, you know, what you what you think you knew before, and therefore that that's part of the again that's part of the experience also of the sapir is to be able to engage in that educational uh, process. Um, when she talks about bi, that it's the sapir bi so that indicates the biz involvement, intense involvement. Like it says about Hashem, Vayar Sivlotam. He saw not et Sivlotam their suffering. He saw Sivlotam, meaning he saw and he was Hashem Kibyachal was in the suffering of the Jewish people. Okay? And that's uh, that's the idea to be intensely involved in this mitzvah, not just superficially telling uh, telling the story. Right? That, through this, I, I, would, I would add in that reflects probably the idea we say, you know, that uh, Everyone has to uh, imagine not only that uh, they're telling the story, but as if they themselves right, left, left Egypt. So we're trying to get very, very deeply involved in, uh, in the story. Okay, moving, <coughs> moving along. So far, so good, okay? Yeah? Okay, Avadim Hayinu. Avadim Hayinu. Okay. Um, Rav Hirsch has this interesting idea. He says, uh, it's a quick one. He says, the basis of our faith is not speculating about things we cannot know, such as Yemot HaMashiach or Olam Haba. Rather, it's in our ability to witness, to experience HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We can say, Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves. That's an experience we, or you know, our ancestors, but transferred down over the generations, we have had that experience. We can feel that experience. That's real. 
That's real. And that's what the fundamental, that's like, the, we're talking like, you know, Pesach night. The fundamentals of our faith, that's what it is, personal experience. And that's what we're trying to experience as well. That's supposed to, you know, speculating about other things. Yofi. Okay, here's a really, really, uh, in my mind, a really nice part. Torah. I love this one. This is about the story of Masa Rabbi Lezer, the rabbis who were learning in Bnei Brak, and the students had to stop them and say, Rabbi Tenu, Higiyazman, Kriyash, Mashal Shachari. So this is from um, a, a, a Haggadah called Kol Menachem, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Okay? Um, it's such a nice Haggadah. It's also physically nice. It has this beautiful, like, soft cover. I love holding it. Um, that's also valuable. I, mean. I, I just, like, look forward to it. So, uh, sorry, really. So, uh, I can feel it, you know, like, feel it like memory. I can feel it in my, I can remember it. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm orangey, yeah. So he says, uh, he says, that he has to follow, the, the, the Rebbe asked the following question. The Rebbe said, I don't understand, how can it be that these rabbis were oblivious to Kriyashma, that the students had to remind them? Like, Weren't they aware? Like, usually, like, it's opposite. Usually, the rabbi have to remind the students, hey, Hevra, like, it's time for Kriyashma. So what's happening there? So he says like this. He says, they were on a very high level. There's, a, there's actually a din. If, you're, if, you have a, if you have the status of what we call Torah, Tohum, not to. If your Torah is your profession. You're such a high level of learning. Like, Torah is so fundamental to your everyday experience. That basically, every spare moment you spend learning, Technically speaking, Osik by Mitzvah Patrim in the Mitzvah, you don't have to dive, you don't have to say Kriyashma or anything like that. Your learning is your involved in the Mitzvah, you don't do anything else. Okay, that's technically speaking. We don't really do it, but it's technically speaking true. So he says that technically speaking, these rabbis, they were exempt. The students maybe weren't on that level, the students were not exempt. So the question is, okay, so if that's the case, says, <coughs> says the Rebbe. So that explains, according to the Rebbe, that explains why they weren't thinking about Kriyashma. But if that's the case, why didn't they continue? When the students interrupted them, why didn't the rabbis continue? Why did they stop? So he says this because Sipur, this telling of the story, is not meant for one's own edification. That Sipur is supposed to be a discussion, and the discussion is meant to be on the level of the people who are with you, your students, your children, the other people at the table. So the the Rebbeim, the Tanaim in the story, their, their their fulfillment was to lower themselves, as it were, to the level of the students, and then and then at that point, then they had to say the Shema with them. Okay, so it's a very nice measure, I think, right, about sort of like what our experience of the Seder is. Sometimes we get like all excited about the Seder, we're like, I want to share the lofty divrei Torah, you know, the lumdus, whatever, that I learned about uh, Arba Kosos, whatever it is, and that might be very nice, but you have to know your audience. If the people are on the table, that's not going to speak to them, it's not going to be a meaningful message, so you have to share, share ideas that are meaningful to the people around you. That's the whole point of Sipur. So he says, that explains, the Rebbe says, that explains the previous paragraph, Right, which is very confusing, because the previous paragraph says, right, Whoever tells the story so much, it's, it's, uh, it's praiseworthy. And then we have the story of the four rabbis. So you should say, oh, the four rabbis, they were telling the story so much, that they did it until morning. But it's also a weird story, because they were interrupted from the Sipur, to say Kriyashma. So what's going on there? So he says like this, he says, the Shevach is, Harizah Mishubach, the Shevach is that they were conducting the Sipur in a correct way. The story tells you what being Marbeh means. Being Marbeh, Kola Marbeh, means not to, uh, to you tell, this, tell a lot, you have a lot of Dvar Torahs, you have a lot of whatever, it's that you are spreading the story. Marbeh, you're spreading the story to those around you. If you're doing that, then that is a successful sipur. And Harizah Mishubach, the interruption, their interruption for Kriyashma is an indication of the success and the way they were telling the, uh, the story. That's a, so that's a nice idea, I think, from, uh, from the Rebbe. Okay. Yofi. <coughs> okay. Uh, a few, uh, one or two more. 
Okay, uh, the four sons, we did the, the Arba Banim. So this is also from the Rabbi Sachs uh, Haggadah. So Rabbi Sachs has uh, certain themes I think that he tends to bring out. So this is a beautiful thing he brings out in Pesach He says that the idea of the four sons represents the idea that we're all in this together. We all draw strength from each other, as well as learning openness to complexity and simplicity. Right? There's the Chacham, there's the Tam. Right? Everyone has a place at the table with the four sons. Now, what's going on with the Russia? The Russia, he says, what's, why is the Russia wicked? He says, because of that word we say, right? Right? What is this to you? To you. So Rabbi Sachs points out that the issue for him is that he's separating himself from a cloud. So we say, the fish would see at that moment a cloud, right? Because he's separating himself from the cloud, so that's the problem with him. It's not an issue of faith. It's not an issue of faith with the, with the, with the Russia. So he doesn't see himself as part of the collective. He says, despite our focus on individual responsibility, the overarching impact is as a group, as an am. I think this is a quote from Rabbi Sachs. Belonging is the first step to believing. Belonging is the first step to believing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a big idea that Rabbi Sachs talks about, certainly. And that, uh, that's represented, and that's represented in, in the four sons, and especially the, uh, the Russia. Similarly, uh, Rabbi Lau, the former chief rabbi, Rabbi Lau, he notes that the machloka between Rav and Shmuel about Matchil Begnim Basem Beshevach to be Sar Avadim Hayinu, or Mitchila Ovdei Avodazara. So he says that there's a two different themes that we have. Rav focuses on the Torah, religious aspect, right? Mitchila Ovdei Avodazara. Our forefathers were idol worshippers. So, and then. Ah, and then we became more religious, right? We understood monotheism, understood Hashem, whatever. Shmuel says, no, Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves. He focuses on the national aspect, on the national aspect. We need both of those elements. We need both of those elements. So he says like this, Moshe Rabbeinu tells us, Hayom le'am. This day you've become a nation. What's this day? It's not Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This day is at Harsinai. The day at Harsinai, when we receive the Torah, so we become a nation. It's two elements. Are the Jewish people a religion or a nation? Yeah? Yes. Right? <laughs> right? We're both a religion and a nation. We're a nation that has a particular way of particular belief system. So both those elements are very, very important. And that's why besides emphasizing this idea of, uh, of, the, na- of the nation. Okay. Um, when it comes to the Enu Yodea Lishol, the Enu Yodea Lishol, so there's, famous, there's a famous board from the Kutzka Rebbe, which is really nice, I think relevant here. So he says that in the Kriyashma we say, These words will be on your heart. So Hutzker asks, why would you say the words should be on your heart? You should think the words should be in your heart. They should be in your heart. So Hutzker has this famous uh, uh, idea, this word that says, no, sometimes a person is not ready to put the words of the Torah in their heart. They're not ready to fully you know, inculcate the values into their everyday life and to really you know, understand everything. But, even in that case, so put it on their heart. You can teach anyways. It'll be on their heart. And eventually, maybe one day, their heart will open up, and if, if the words were there, right, so the teachings were there, the words will, you know, as it were, come uh, enter the heart. That's the idea. You teach openness. Okay? And that's the idea of the end of the daily show. He doesn't want to ask questions, this person. You know, I mean, he doesn't really know what to ask, even. So fine. Tell him something. Who knows? Is he ready to hear yet? Not ready to hear yet? Let's leave, let's put it there, and maybe they'll be able to uh, they'll be able to do that. He says uh, sincere questions reflect openness, which leads to spirituality. 
Okay, so it's a very nice idea about being able to share ideas at the Seder. I think also maybe, you know, maybe I'm not alone. A lot of us have people at the Seder who maybe are not the same level of observance as we are. So you're not going to start, you know, berating them about, uh, about uh, halakhic observance, etc., etc. And maybe some of the ideas at the Seder are a little bit new, and maybe they're not so comfortable, uh, all the ideas necessarily. But that's okay. If you do it a nice way, right, you're trying to share these, uh, these messages, and you, uh, you have these, uh, these thoughts that go around, and who knows, when the person's ready at a different, different time in life, who knows, they'll be, uh, they'll be able to do that. David says that's okay. where you should bring up the esoteric of this. <laughs> that's a shock. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, you guys have energy? A couple more? Is that okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Another one from Rav Salavajic on Behisha Amda. Um, so the Rav talked about this idea that the story, Behisha Amda, right, is that Right, so Rav talked about this idea that this story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is not the story about the past. It's a, it's a, it, it is a story about the past, but it's a story about the past that's, that's relevant at all times. It's present day story as well. Right, the idea that in every generation this story is relevant to us. Hashem's always watching all over us. There's always dangers uh, we we face, and so we're giving thanks for the past. That's for sure true. But we're also praying for the present and for the future. You know, who knows what things we're not. We've no guarantees in life about how things will be. So that's what Hisham does is reflective of that, uh, of that idea. Okay. Um, let's do one more. Uh, on Dayenu, Rabbi Sachs on Dayenu. So Rabbi Sachs says uh, like this, what's going on with Dayenu? So he says, this song is a tikkun for the ingratitude of the Jews in the Midbar where there was a lot of complaining. Okay, a lot of complaining in the Midbar. So we, we say Dayenu to sort of give thanks for every single stage of the Geula, right? Every little thing we give thanks for. And again, what the idea is that uh, a slave cannot feel gratitude. Okay, one of the signs of freedom is the capacity to feel and express gratitude. Okay, and being so, so, try, so saying Dayenu right, is reflective of that. I don't mean that a slave can't literally express gratitude, right? You could, but it's sort of like I don't know if you ever read the, uh, the, the autobiography of uh, Natan Sharansky. Um, so fear no evil. So his autobiography. So he talks about the idea that he was incarcerated, right, by the by the Russians, by the Soviets. But in some way, he was always free because in his mind, he was always free. So that's a different thing, right? Sometimes you can be physically slave, but you can be, you know, intellectually or you know, psychologically free in a certain sense, right? So, but the idea of like expressing gratitude. Is, a, is, is an ability to, to feel, to, uh, it means you're sort of feeling freedom in a certain sense. I guess I, I would say it like this, like, uh, it also reflects a certain amount of, um, of self-esteem, right? If you feel good about yourself, so you're able to thank other people, right? When you don't feel good about yourself, it's very hard to thank other people because that means you're giving credit to other, to other people and not to yourself, right? It's a much harder to say thank you when you don't feel good. When you do feel good, Share the wealth, right? I thank everybody, right? I take no credit. What do I need credit for? I'm, uh, I can just be thankful to other people. So that's a nice sign of like, again, that, that's a very freeing feeling, right? That sense. So uh, that's the idea. Okay, one last point. It says, What does it mean to bring us to Harsinai and not give us the Torah? What would be the value of going to Harsinai and without getting the Torah? So, um, so I, heard that, I, heard, I heard in the name, I think, of Rabbi Fran said, actually, that uh, it was the Achtos. Rashi tells us on the Midrash. Right, like as one people, we were like we were so unified. So maybe that the feeling of afters was worth it. Rabbi, Rabbi Isaac says a slightly different idea. He says it would have been enough to believe in Hashem because it showed it wasn't just the words of a prophet, but we all witnessed 
the revelation of Hashem. Meaning, if you want to take the uh, that argument about uh, about Kutari's uh, argument, yeah, right about uh, the truth of Torah is that they brought us to Harsina, they having the experience of revelation, even if we didn't get the words of the Torah, even if we just had revelation from God on Harsina, that would be enough to sort of have this relationship uh, with Hashem, and that would be uh, a very meaningful thing. Anyhow, okay, so that was a lot of uh, you know quick, relatively quick divrei Torah. Hopefully, it's just uh, impetus to then also be able to uh, to look at your, look at the Haggadahs for your own divrei Torah. Certainly, if you want to uh, share these ones as well, I certainly would be quite gratified. Wish you guys really a wonderful uh, Chag and a uh, and a wonderful Mendes Mamen. Uh, uh,